0: Afternoons with me, I'm Bill Arnold, and we've got a great show planned. I've got Guy Talk, or Guys Who Talk, that will be starting in just a minute. And hour two is, uh, Todd Mulligan's going to be joining me. We're going to talk about relationships. That's all good. That's the plan. Let me know what your questions are for the guys, 877-933-2484. Again, 877-933-2484. Our power panel today is Pastors Tom Brock, Tom Parrish, Dr. Peter Capsner, Tom Brock, is calling in today all the way from Italy. Tom, Ooh. Brock, let me first say hi to you because you're long distance. How are <laughs> you, my friend?
1: Ciao. I'm doing well. Thank you. <laughs> was, that,
0: was, that, was that Italian?
1: <laughs> that was about all the Italian I know.
0: <laughs> um, you having a good time?
1: I'm having a great time. I've been hiking in the Cinque Terre today, and mm. yesterday I climbed to the top of the Power of Pisa.
0: Nice. I'm glad to hear that.
1: Getting old, though. Uh, my feet aren't working like they used to. It's kind of, kind of sad, but I did it anyway.
0: Yeah. Well, nice to hear your voice, and I'm looking forward to having you back in studio when the time is right. Thank you. <laughs> yeah. And again, uh, text your questions over eight seven seven nine three three two four eight four. I had a question that came up yesterday, which I found was very interesting from a listener, and we were talking about uh, she was noticing how. Mighty men of God from scripture are referred to routinely uh, among scholars and biblical teachers and leaders as guys. Why can't men be men? It's like pastoral leadership is afraid to use the word man. Like speaking about a man as a man is politically incorrect, but it, but it's okay to be a guy. So anyway, I think uh, it's a good topic to address because I, I do think she's got a very valid point. She
2: does have a valid point, and the problem in our culture is we can't let the culture keep redefining the Bible. The Bible is very implicit on these great leaders, and predominantly they were men of God. There were women too that the Lord raised up. Praise God for that. But the bottom line is they're created in His image. What we do oftentimes using terms like guys, and I'm not against guys. Hey, that's the name of our show. You know, is okay, but it has a tendency not to be as elevated in thinking. And so we need to think highly. I do of these people. They weren't the savior, but they really represented him well.
3: Yeah, I think there's been a a diminishment of men for a variety of reasons and in a variety of ways over the past, I suppose, two, three, four decades. Uh, And and I think it's happened overtly. I think it's happened subtly. I think uh, men have been in in cultural power for quite some time, and have in, in a fair-minded way, they've misused and abused that power. So, mm-hmm. so there needed to be some reckoning in that, clearly. But but anytime you begin to diminish as a way of trying to remedy a situation, you end up with a worse situation long term. And so, I think the diminishing of of, of men has maybe had an understandable origin, but the results have been really, really uh, poorly experienced. And I was with a, a group of young women last night at the University of Northwestern, St. Paul, just talking about their lives as young women and what it's like for them to be in relationship now with young men, and especially in a context in which so many young men have not had father figures in their home. And you, you don't just come out of the womb knowing how to be a, a young man. You know, you say, hey, I've got this thing dialed in. I know how to be a young man. You, you need modeling of... Of men that are are faithful and have integrity and and humility and know how to walk in in some of these tricky variable ridden paths in life and and so many of these young men do not have those models around them, and so they don 't know how to be and to become in the midst of that so there I, I think I think I've underestimated the epidemic that exists among the in the crisis among young men uh, and sort of the knuckleheadedness that is there for understandable reasons because they have not had the models for now two generations of men.
1: And I would like to quote that wise sage, Bill Arnold, Whoa, who said a, a couple months ago. <laughs> he, Bill Arnold said this a couple months ago, and this is a good line. He said, <clears throat> in the 1950s, it was Father knows best. In the 16, 60s and 70s, God, uh, fathers don't know anything. And today it's who needs fathers? We have test tube babies. We have artificial insemination. We have, you know, all kinds of, you know, it's just, I I agree, it's tragic. You know, when I grew up, there were two genders, male and female. (laughs) And because we so devalued God-given distinctions between the sexes, our culture has gone crazy. Mm -hmm. So if you've been following some of this transgender stuff in the news the last couple of days with this father having his daughter attacked, in the high school bathroom because of a transgender policy, you know, it, it's just, it, it's, it's kind of like Romans one where people, if they thumb their nose at God, God gives them over to their own craziness.
3: Mm. I was reading a scholar not too long ago who, it was not a Christian scholar, just a, an atheist, a pretty liberal scholar from the East coast. And she was reflecting on history that when you see civilizations and cultures that begin to do the gender blurring that you're describing, Tom, That most of the time in the past, whether it's the Greco-Roman Empire, uh, whether it's the Weimar Republic of Germany, a number of other empires along those lines, they said that those... In those places, the people that begin to blur the lines of the genders, they think they're becoming more sophisticated. They think they're becoming more enlightened. They think they're getting smarter and more advanced and all of these things. But she said, actually, from the perspective of history, it is reflective of a culture that no longer believes in itself. And it's sort of the last stages before that culture begins to unravel. And that was quite a Amen. statement when you look at just the the, the tension that exists in our country. I think, is in large degree because of the fracture of who are supposed to be the stewards, the men and women working together to, to shepherd the future on behalf of God's people. And you see those fractures and the blurrings and the whole thing starts melting down pretty quickly.
1: And, you know, if, if you hold to the traditional view that men and women are equal, both are uh, equally human and valuable in God's sight, but God does create the man to lead the marriage, wiser to submit to their husbands, husbands are lovingly to, uh, you know, um, be there for their wives. I mean, when's the last time you even heard any of that, even in a wedding sermon? You know, that was normal to to quote, you know, Ephesians, uh, and husbands love your wives, wives submit yourselves to your husbands. Where do you ever hear that anymore? We're afraid to even say that in church. So I think uh, the church is the one that needs to start standing up again on these things.
0: Nicely said. And Terry, my wingman, made a comment as well, which I would like to share. He said, uh, Men Talk doesn't have the same ring to it, <laughs> even though I agree with the texture. Yeah. Yeah. Guy, guy Talk does sound better somehow. I like it. A group of guys getting together to talk about I, I important like that. things in it, life.
3: And, and I think in fairness, it, it does speak to a collegiality and a fun and a friendship yep. that that is desperately missing, right? I mean, yep. that just just the the fun factor within Christianity right. is something that I think is representative in it's that, and I think a hit. It, it's
0: super compelling when that happens. I agree. Yeah. I agree. Yeah. All right, in John chapter 6, ha- have we spent too much time framing the understanding of the miracle of Jesus walking on water? Aren't we better off to reframe that to Jesus was walking through the storm, Mm. because the storm was raging at the time, and he was calmly walking along uh, with absolute power over all the forces of nature. We always talk about Jesus walking on water, but I like to think that maybe we should reconsider Jesus is walking through the storm. He was Mm. walking on water, but the storm was raging. Your thoughts? Well, I think if we would be... Because I can't be the only one of a smart tonight. <laughs> <laughs> but you are crushing it. by all metrics. You're crushing it. Okay, good. It. So Thanks, yes. Peter. Yeah,
2: indeed. Well, when you're in the presence of brilliance, you just have to learn to put up with it. Anyway, <laughs> I think sometimes as teachers of the Word, preachers of the Word, we're lazy. What I mean by lazy is the text talks about there was a terrific storm, and Jesus then came along walking on the water. Traditionally, we grew up with talking about Jesus walking on the water. When do we back up and look at the text again and say, wait a minute, we've got to talk about the whole picture here. And the whole picture is there was a tremendous storm going on, just as there's a storm going on in your life and my life all the time. Mm -hmm. And it is in the midst of that that Jesus comes walking in quite honestly, peacefully. There's no chaos. There's no confusion. He comes and he stretches out his hand and says, follow me and I'll make your life different. Where the devil comes in and he makes the problem worse and he makes the storm worse. So there's so much you can do with that text, and I agree with the, uh, the the question here because we have to look more at what the text says in its totality because we've got a big picture, and that big picture really gives us an understanding of who Jesus is.
3: Yeah, I haven't really thought much about that idea that he, but beyond the miracle of walking on the water that it was in the midst of the storm. That That is a significant, I think, um, setting for understanding what's happening there. Called to mind uh, a Bethel music song that I really— it just ministers to me every time we sing it, and it's It Is Well. And there's some lines in the song that is, So let it go, my soul, and trust in him, for the waves and the wind still know his name. And, and it calls to mind this picture that somehow the deference of creation itself, when the Creator was walking among it. And you, you talk about the trees of the field will clap their hands, and the rocks will cry out, and the waves and the wind, they, they just— they're. They're now in the presence of the very one that brought forth all of this into being. And so just the majesty of that moment that in the midst of the storm through it all, our eyes can be on him and be fixed in the midst of that because he is the king in all of these different ways. And I think it does bring something different besides, wow, that's really cool
0: that he could walk on water. Uh, the the symbol that you're bringing forth mm-hmm. and that I think is really important. I mean, because it does remind us of that life is filled with terrifying things. For sure. So many things that are completely hard to understand. And yet, in the midst of all of that storm and turmoil, is a calm Jesus walking calmly. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It sure is, sure. yeah. And he sure. has the power over all the forces of darkness, all the forces of evil. This is w- who I put my trust in. Yeah, and I think that what you just said
3: is is so profound because life is scary. When we, if we set if we just sit back for a minute and be honest about what goes on in life and, and the fear creating realities that we have to face day in and day out. And then you sing that kind of song that I was referencing, that through it all, through it all, my eyes are on you. The waves and winds still know your name. And so it is well with my soul. Like, I don't know of any other place to find peace in the soul in the midst of the storms of life than to fix your eyes on Jesus. And, and in that place then comes the true wellness of the soul that is only masquerading at best from the events of this world.
1: And- and you know what's interesting too about that text, uh, it says, "and he meant to pass them by." Now, what on <laughs> earth does that mean? You know, but it, it's in there. It just says, you know, Jesus is walking in the water. The boat, disciples are scared in the boat, and he was going to pass them by. And Peter says, "You know, can I come greet you on the water?" You know, it's just sometimes the Bible just kind of says surprising. I, I remember an old pastor saying that. You know, when he comes to a Bible verse that he's confused about, he studies it, looks at it, thinks on it, but then tips his hat to it, walks around, and moves on. Well, that's one of those. I what, what does it mean he meant to pass them by? But there it is.
0: All right, we'll take a short break. Let me know what your questions are. The panel is ready to answer them to the best of their ability. The text line is 877-933-2484. Again, 877 933 84. If it's easier for you to remember my email address, it's bill at myfaithradio.com. Take questions either way. Be back in a minute. talk or guys who talk. Let me know what your questions are. We'd love to hear from you. I know you got something. Maybe there's a question you've always wanted to ask your pastor, but you just couldn't summon up the courage to do it. You can ask these guys. They will take on anything. 877-933-2484. When you think of the holiness of God, does it feel like a threat to you in a way, or does it feel like an assurance to you? How about that for an odd question?
2: Hmm. Actually, it's a pretty good question. And I think. I wrote it. (laughs) (laughs) I think that we experience both in, in our lives because when we are straying from the Lord, the concept of his holiness, or however it is brought to us in the scriptures or by somebody else or by somebody witnessing or whatever it may be, at first is a frightening thing because we realize we can't hide anymore. We can't get away with this. But on the other hand, we experience his grace and his forgiveness, which I wish more would understand. Then the holiness is his purity and his consistency. We don't have to worry about him. He's not like, you know, I I remember when I was in junior high, I I had to ask five different girls to go to the dance before I got one. I I never (laughs) knew he was going to go. You know, the the good news is with Jesus, I I barely have to ask once, and he says yes. Mm. And that's the consistency of holiness that we don't think about or talk Mm. about very much.
0: Is that it? (laughs) (laughs) I expect so much more.
1: Well, I think the holiness of God makes all of us sinners cringe a bit because it means we're in trouble. Um, But like Tom just pointed out, His grace provides the means by which He uh, placates His own holiness, and that's the cross. So, I mean, God apart from the cross would be pretty scary, but we don't have a God apart from the cross. We have um, a holy God who loves us enough to bear the penalty for our sin to satisfy his own holiness.
0: All right, here's another question. What does it mean to be a disciple of Jesus? What practical things do I need to do to be a disciple that reflects Jesus? Yeah, and I, I love what it meant to be a Christian
3: in the earliest church. Uh, you you would be signing up to become a follower of the way. and And I think sometimes we... Understandably, but maybe mistakenly associate being a Christian with the fact that I did some sort of conversion to get myself positioned properly for the afterlife. And, and the, the concerns of the afterlife are not necessarily the concerns of the gospel writers or the book of Acts. The concerns of, of those authors and even of Pauline theology as well is primarily what does it mean to live free from the power of sin and death in this life uh, within the resurrection life of Jesus as you become a follower of the way. So I think once you understand that what we're signing up for is discipleship right at the beginning, it's not to get converted to get saved for the afterlife and then sort of become a disciple. You're actually signing up to become a follower of the way. And when you do that, you naturally want to start uh, staying as close as you can to the master of the way and learn the ways of that master, that being Jesus. And So if you're an early church disciple, that's what you signed up for. They spent probably two years in training about what the way even was before they were invited to convert to become a follower of the way. And then from that place, they gathered in fellowship. They listened to the disciples teaching. They continued to grow within the power of the spirit so that they were naturally but supernaturally bearing witness to the way. And that way is simply the way in which we actually can manifest the, the realities of God, the, the ways of love, the ways of joy, the ways of peace, the thing, things that are actually true, not fraudulently. We actually do become people of increasing love as God imparts his life into our life as we become followers of the way. So I, I think that question, Bill, frankly, would be a, a really helpful and potentially expansive um, assistance for a lot of people that feel trapped in, in their belief because they maybe have understandably— but in a truncated way, I thought that being a Christian was about something related to the afterlife only when really the invitation to become a Christian is to become a follower of the way. And I want to live by a different power that I can't live by myself. So please, Jesus, by your spirit, come and bring a different kind of power in my life so I can shine your light in the world. It's, it, there's so much more that we be said. We spend hundreds and hundreds of minutes in class talking about what it means to become a follower of the way.
2: And that's really important. This is something that the church struggles with. Mm -hmm. We get people to come to church, and really most churches, if you look at their constitution, you know what it means to be a good church member? In most constitutions it is you contribute to the church treasury and you attend uh, two or more worship services a year. Now, I don't find that in the Bible. You don't? No, but it's in a lot of (laughs) constitutions out there. And the problem is with our Western mindset, and I want to bring this up, we have turned everything into an academic exercise. Mm-hmm. It's kind of like mm-hmm. the university. So we get all the information about Jesus. If we get it just right. We get all the nuances. Then we're going to be better off. And I'm all for study. I study all the time. But in Eastern mindset, being a disciple had little to do with the accumulation of knowledge. It was much more the accumulation of the relationship with yep. the master. Yep. And knowing the master and thinking like the master and talking like the master and walking with the master. We don't do enough of that. And we have to expose people to
3: that concept. Yeah, I I think if you can train your mindset to say, I'm becoming an apprentice in kingdom life. I need to learn what the master says. I mean, to to be an apprentice, uh, if you're an apprentice of a blacksmith, you're assuming that this blacksmith is a master of their craft, and you're going to learn from the blacksmith how to become that. That's what it means to become an apprentice or a disciple in the kingdom. You're increasingly becoming like the master in authentic ways.
1: And I I would, as a Lutheran, I would say, the Lutheran heresy is, I'm baptized, I'm saved, get off my back. <laughs> the Baptist the Baptist heresy is, I prayed the prayer, I asked Jesus into my heart, get off my back. Jesus said, he who endures to the end will mm-hmm. be saved. The word disciple means learner. And and Jesus said, there are going to be people on the last day that will say, didn't we do all this great stuff for you, Lord? And he says, depart from me, you workers of lawlessness, I never knew you. So part of being a disciple is not just getting baptized, not just praying the prayer, it's then following Christ. Uh, that's a follower of Christ is what the word Christian means. Right. And if you are if you prayed the prayer or if you got baptized, but you're not following Christ, you're not going to have a good eternity. You know, we're saved by grace alone. I, I totally believe that. But grace always changes your life. So,
2: My father-in-law, who was in the Battle of the Bulge, he's now deceased. Hmm. He, uh, we were talking, and I said to him, what was it like being in the foxhole about 200 yards away from the Germans? And it's snowy, and it's cold, and it's miserable. I said, how did you sleep? He said, quite well. I said, what do you mean quite well? He said, because I knew the other guys I was with were looking out for my welfare as well as their own, and those on guard were going to protect me no matter what happened. And I think that's what it comes down to here. We're not, you know, We're not just trying to gather information mm-hmm. about Jesus. It's knowing that he will be there knowing that he is the Lord, and knowing that where we go, he'll be with us, and we can really live in confidence. We don't do enough of that, and we should be training kids in that thinking from very early on.
1: And, you know, just this morning I was reading Acts 6, the story of Ananias and Sapphira who fell down dead because they lied to the, disciples, the apostles. And, whoa, did they have a different view of discipleship in the early church than we have today. And it's kind of like, we feel like we can do whatever we want. You now here's two people that lied about the price of the property they donated, and boom, they're destroyed. So, you know, I, I think what Peter said earlier about in the early church, you just didn't pray a prayer or get baptized. You then entered into the lifelong following of Christ.
0: All right. Let me know what your questions are. 877-933-2484. Again, 877 933 for I don't know if we've got enough time to get started on this but <clears throat> let me point out John 20:23 20, if you forgive someone's sins their sins are forgiven if you hold them they are held now the comment is in what sense do we forgive someone's sins as described in John 20:23 i can forgive someone who sins against me but i can't make them right with god and Theology no, Boy well, you, just but... shook his head and goes, I don't know. It must be time for no, break, I... by now it has
2: to be time for break.
1: This is called the Office of the Keys, where Jesus gives the apostles the authority to forgive sins and to retain sins. And we do this every week in a lot of churches where the the church confesses their sins, and then the pastor says, you know, I announce to you the forgiveness of your sins through Christ. And then the Old Liturgy, which I'd like... Also says, but those that don't repent, I re- you know, your sins are retained. You're in trouble. And it's something the church has been doing publicly for, you know, hundreds and hundreds of years. And I don't think we should leave it behind. We need well, to know when we go to church that our sins are forgiven when we're coming to Christ.
0: All right. We'll take a break. When we come back, lots more Guy Talk or Guys Who Talk. Let me know what you have as questions, 877-933-2484 or Bill at MyFaithRadio.com. Whatever's easier. We just want to get your questions. Again, 877 We'll be right back. Back to the show, Guy Talk. What is going on right now? Let me know what your questions are. 877-933-2484. Here's a question. Um, When you are going to be a follower of Jesus, and we're always instructed that we have to count the cost, how do you do that when you don't know what the cost might be? Hmm.
2: One of the nice things is we live in a continuum of church history. And so we see the generation before us, And we may see the generation coming after us. What impressed me was when, I think it was, I don't know, like in the 1800s, when the first European missionaries and American missionaries really went to Africa in large numbers to bring the gospel. The first generation that went, most of them died. They were either martyred or they died of disease. What impressed me was not that first generation. It was the second generation Mm. that said, knowing everything that happened, we know the cost But the gospel is still worth it, and we will go and suffer if we have to and die. And I think that's part of it, and we need to pay attention to how God's people have lived around the world. Like right now, you look at Afghanistan. Christians there are paying the price for being believers. And we get comfortable, we turn on our TV, we watch the news, and we forget about them. Instead, we have to kind of immerse our thinking in it. And that's why I like a small group like this where you can talk and to say, you know, there's people that are really suffering. And dying, and there are, there are fathers, and they 're going to see their daughters again that have been taken away, but they 're not going to compromise the gospel.
3: that to me is counting the cost, yeah, I think one of the things i 've appreciated over these past several months and maybe even a couple of years of guy talk is it seems like it comes up regularly this topic the The idea of what it means to say yes to following Jesus that you 're likely to be signing up for a life that isn 't going to be all that comfortable at the end of the day. You, And and so when you count the cost, part of what you're counting is that you're giving up your life, giving up your ideas about what your successful life can and should look like. And you're signing up for a life of being misunderstood. I mean, we talked about you're going to become like your master, right? If you become a disciple, that's the idea. You grow in Christ likeness. You will have power that is unknown to the world available to you. In that it it is otherworldly kingdom power. It has conquered sin and death. All of that is true. But in the midst of a world that is in this present darkness ruled by the principalities and powers, what that means is that you better count the cost of being misunderstood. You better count the cost of that you're not gonna have a comfortable place to lay your head. You better count the cost of saying that in this world you will have trouble. All of these different things. So I think what you've just said, you, you can look at the littered history of beautiful light shining disciples that really brought kingdom change into this world. And so many of them were killed. Yeah. Well, welcome to the faith right now in the midst of the raging battle of this present darkness. And I, th- I think counting the cost, but then the upside of that cost is this beautiful pearl of great price, which is the unencumbered life, the easy yoke of Jesus that says, I don't have to be fussed any longer by the things of this world. I'm anchored somewhere mm-hmm. entirely different. And that is otherworldly power that begins to inhabit who we are in the exactly. midst of it.
1: And you know, when I was younger, when I would lead someone to Christ and go through the forest spiritual of laws and okay, now pray the prayer after me. I learned before I do that now, I stop and I say now, and this isn't in the four spiritual Law booklet, but I add it and I say, now, just so you know, when you decide to receive Christ, that means you're willing to die for him. And this really might cost you your life someday. People who have done this in Afghanistan have died because they've done this. So if just, I want you to know before we pray this that this means you're giving your life to Christ, and you're willing to die for him. And I say that, and they still normally want to accept Christ, hallelujah. But I think we need to do that. I mean, when Joel Osteen writes a book called Your Best Life Now— and um, John MacArthur criticized that, and he said, boy, if you've got your best life now, good luck. <laughs> and I think, you know, when do you hear uh, some of these prosperity preachers teach suffering, death, you know, sacrifice, it's all, you know, you you, you put on that happy face and you have that strong faith. You're going to get that better job, and, and God will provide you with a nice car. Mm-hmm. Uh, He'll provide you with death a lot of times. That's what happens in the New Testament. These people die for Christ.
0: And this is coming from a pastor who's on vacation in Italy for three weeks. <laughs> <There you go>. <laughs> <laughs> that makes sense. Ow. <laughs> <laughs>
3: <laughs> the irony oh, that was great. Yeah, but I, but Brock, I think what you're saying is so important too. I just I think we recognize it, right? That that's that is what we're signing up for. And I think it might when we talk about the, the question came up earlier. What are some ways in which you can be just practically a daily disciple? I think you can take a, a spiritual inventory on a regular basis with ruthless honesty of yourself. Is where am I compared to maybe somebody like the disciple Peter, who after a lifelong of following and failure and and humbling, but power and, and strength and all of the things that happened, he, he counted it an honor to die like his master. And in fact, so much so he said, I don't even want to die like him. I want to be crucified upside down. He considered that an honor. So in taking a ruthless, honest look a spiritual inventory at myself where am i now related to that am i willing to die i am willing to die yep. would i consider it an honor know, I, well that's I, another question and just you and so that i think those are some of the things we can ask ourselves on a daily basis when you think about I, it and yeah. i
1: read i read that this morning in acts two that the disciples were be, were uh, uh beaten preaching the gospel, and it says they left their rejoicing that they had been considered worthy <laughs> to suffer it. for Christ. Yeah. Yep. Where do we hear that kind of talk today? We need, <laughs> right to, we need, to, we need to preach this. There you go. <laughs> the
2: closest we get is not when we teach this from the scriptures, unfortunately. And I'm glad, Tom, you bring up the part about dying. I usually tell people you're not committing to being a lifelong disciple of Jesus no matter what comes. But what do we say, what are the traditional marriage vows? You know, for better, for worse, for richer, for poor you know, in sickness and in health, till death shall part us. And that's really what we're talking about with Jesus. I don't know what he's going to do. He might wind up giving me a million dollars, but, you know, to whom much is given, much is required. It's not for me. I might wind up with nothing. But either way, he's still
0: Lord, and I'm still going to serve him to the very end. All right, here's a question. Uh, I think that will apply to some of my Lutheran pastors, Um, and it has to do with, uh, boy, where'd it go? Uh, Let's see. And that is, are you saved once you're confirmed in the Lutheran Church? No.
2: And you're not just saved at baptism either. There is, again, we, we love these moments and points of time and say, on October 25th, 1975, I gave my life to Jesus or I was baptized and therefore it's over, no matter how I live or what I think or what I do. What is happening is that in both baptism, confirmation, public affirmation of Jesus at a a rally where you step forward, it's the beginning of a process. It is not the end result of the process. And we we then walk in that every single day until the very end. Now, you don't have to live with fear that I'm not good enough, because we aren't. We're never good enough. But once you put your hand in the hand of Jesus and you hear what he says— that's who you want to pursue for the rest of your life. And it doesn't matter how good or wonderful I am. It depends totally upon who He is. And I will keep chasing Him until my last breath.
1: And, you know, I'll say again the Lutheran heresy is I'm baptized, I'm confirmed, I'm saved, get off my back. Okay. <laughs> the Baptist heresy is I prayed the prayer, I asked Jesus into my heart, get off my back. And again, Jesus says, He who endures to the end will be saved. I think baptism is hugely important. I think it's great to publicly confirm your faith in sure. Christ mm-hmm. but that's not yeah. your ticket. Your ticket is what Christ did on the cross and trusting him till the end.
3: And I, and I think at the risk of of being annoyingly repetitive on this topic today, I We're, I think, understandably, consistently asking the question that's called the the eschatological uh, eschatological question or what happens at the end of our life? Where do we go when we die? That, That seems to be sort of the angsty question many people ask. And again, I think it's terribly understandable, but we have to be very careful not to take our angst and then misread into the biblical text what the biblical text is inviting us. The biblical text is not inviting us in answering that question, what ritual, by what mechanism can I get myself into heaven when I die? It simply is not really addressing my question. Right. So salvation, when we hear this word or what it means to be saved, we immediately apply that to being saved, meaning going to heaven when I die. But in the biblical sense, salvation is a present an ongoing action of some redemptive resource from God in which we engage that saves us from the power of sin and death, dominating our present and our future. We're saved into a new kind of life that begins now and persists throughout eternity. If, if we don't take that view of salvation, then passages like Philippians, where it says, work out your salvation in fear and trembling, make no sense to us. Or first or Peter says, grow up in the fullness of your salvation. These verses don't make any sense when we're asking only the eschatological, the end question. We have to be asking, what does it mean to engage with the present ongoing salvation of God that is available? To be saved means that I've become a follower of the way and I'm saved from the power of sin and death dominating my life. Now I'm not free from the power of sin and death in this corruptible body, right? right? We're going to wrestle with it for this entire life. But now I have a new power at work in me. The resurrection life of God is at work in the midst of this frail body of sin and death. And it's calling me safely home. So I'm not worried about where I'm going to go when I die. I know where my home is. I'm heading that direction as we go. And I can't wait to set down the luggage of this life and just be like, I'm finally safely home. And if we can get our mind around the idea that becoming a Christian as a follower of the way interacting with salvation, it changes the equation on every level, all the doubts and the fears and the turmoil that we have when we're always asking, gosh, did I do the mechanism right to get myself safely into heaven? It's not the question of the Bible.
2: In next week, my wife and I will celebrate 49 years of marriage. Uh, I was 10. She was nine. We got married. A little young, <laughs> but uh, we were <laughs> celebrating that. Somebody <laughs> at church there, they said, oh yeah, your anniversary come How many years? And I said, 49. And the person looked at me and said, and you still love her? You know, and it kind of caught me off guard. That's Christianity. It's not just the day that we made the profession of Jesus. It's that we still love him, and he is the focus of our life. Have I had my ups and down times in marriage? Of course I have. It's never easy. There's always mistakes, a lot of forgiveness. But with Jesus, he's the one we're pursuing. And whether it's one year, 49 years, or, uh, you know,
0: 1,400, he's all that matters. Yeah. Here's a great question. We fight sin every day and hate it, yet we know that we are forgiven? I struggle to think that as believers we will also be judged again. I understand it mentally, but it doesn't make heart sense. I've told God he knows, signed Mr. Curious. I love it. That's a great question.
2: It's a wonderful question. Go ahead, Tom. You know you've got an answer.
1: (laughs) uh, Default to Italy, boy. Uh, I know my sins are forgiven. I know on Judgment Day I'll be declared righteous, not guilty because of Christ's uh, substitutionary atonement for my sins, but we still go through judgment day. Does does that mean God brings up my sins that I've repented of? I think maybe probably not. But there's other stuff that I probably never even thought was wrong that maybe God's going to have to talk to me about. And He will reward us. First Corinthians three, we will be saved by grace alone. But what you do with your life will determine the rewards with which you go into heaven. So just everybody read 1 Corinthians 3 about both of the men are have the same foundation of Christ, they both get into heaven, but one goes smoking in and the other goes in with reward. So <laughs>
3: And and I'm not entirely sure that that believers have to be afraid of that time of judgment. I think we're sort of observing in the midst of it because when we we say yes to following Jesus, we get this gift of assurance, right? I mean, this is the the heart of the old hymn, blessed assurance, Jesus is mine, oh, what a foretaste of glory divine. You get this assurance. And so I don't think we're suddenly going to be standing at the great white judgment throne and Jesus is going to pull the rug of assurance underneath us and keep us waiting with bated breath what our eternal future is going to look like. So I, I think we can take that off the equation, but I think we're going to be witness to the incredible separation of the wheat and the tares of the sheep and the goats. And and, and I think there is probably going to be a profound grief and sadness in the midst of that of the imagers who have decided to walk away.
2: I honestly believe that when we stand before Jesus at the end of time as believers, and he welcomes us, he's also going to say, Peter, you used to lose your temper with your, your one son. I did. And you didn't, didn't always control it. Why didn't you try to become more like me in the way you treated Absolutely. him? Absolutely. That's much more we're talking about, you know, judgment in that sense. It's not judgment that you're condemned, you're not welcome, right. you're out the door. It's that I gave you opportunities to become more like me because I gave you a son that would create that irritation. And right. it's for it was for your good. Mm-hmm. The goal is become like and, me, you know, not like yourself. Indeed.
1: And and we, you're right, uh, Peter. We have the assurance through Christ our sins are forgiven. We're going to heaven, but I don't think anybody's going to be whistling Dixie on Judgment Day. Yeah, I agree. Here's here's where 2 Corinthians 5, Paul says, We must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ to receive according to what each one has done in the body, whether good or bad. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade men, which means we're out there to try to save people because we know this great day is coming for everybody.
0: All right, we'll take a little break. When we come back, more guide talk. Let me know what your questions are. 877 933 2484. The power panel today is Pastors Tom Brock, Tom Parrish, and Dr. Peter Kapstrom. Be right back. talk. Okay, we had a. I just had a, a caller, and I, I didn't quite understand exactly the point. And I'm sorry you guys were not patched in, but I think it had something to do with the topic we talked about in the first part of the hour about forgiving sins. That passage that the church has the authority uh, when people confess sins to say uh, your sins are forgiven. They're not forgiving sins. They're just doing an affirmation that your sins through Christ have been forgiven.
2: Now, Jesus is the only one that his blood is what forgives the sin. What we're doing is we're attaching the blood. We're, we're recognizing that it's Jesus who does this. And I recognize when I pronounce forgiveness over people, I don't have the ability to forgive just because of Tom Parrish, but because I am a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ and ambassador of the gospel. He says that authority now can flow through me, through any believer, when we're given those opportunities and circumstances. And so... Uh, it's it's still Jesus, no matter what. We're just
0: simply the agent. I mean, Peter... You know, let's... <laughs> oh, go ahead, John. Go ahead. Go, no, go ahead, Tom.
1: Well, you know, just wrestling with John 20 uh, a little bit, who, and Jesus says to the disciples, whoever sins, you forgive, they are forgiven. Whoever sins, you retain, they are retained. And if you remember, when Jesus forgave sins, the, the uh, Pharisees were upset, well, who can do that but God alone? and then he heals the paralytic and the people praise god that god has given such authority to men so jesus had the authority to forgive sins and he, he yes ultimately jesus is the one who forgives sins but he does give that authority to believers i think he does that you know when when the old liturgy that i grew up hearing was something like this uh, you know in the church service you confess your sins lord Forgive me, I've sinned, and so, said. And then the pastor says, I, I declare unto you who do truly repent the entire forgiveness of all your sins, in the name of uh Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. On the other hand, by the same authority, I declare to the impenitent and unbelieving that so long as they continue in their impenitence, God has not forgiven their sins, and will surely visit their iniquities upon them, lest the day of grace be ended. So there in, in uh the service you have both the forgiving of the sins. And the retaining of the sins, and I think you don't have to be a pastor to do that. Any Christian can say to another Christian that you see as penitent, well, you know, God forgives your sins. But any Christian can also say to to a hard-hearted sinner, you know, unless you repent, you're in trouble. Mm-hmm. Uh, so there you go.
2: Well, John 20, we're given. You're right. We're given the authority. If you look at the text there, he doesn't say the people that are being forgiven have to repent. He didn't say that there. He says, if you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. It's really, the issue is not, are they getting forgiven? The issue is, what authority is being given to us to go out and proclaim the gospel, which is life-changing? And uh, in that case, we should be out there continually inviting people to come to the Lord and receive his forgiveness and assure them that when they do, they have that forgiveness.
3: And, and I think I wonder if we're dealing with a bit of, of just nuance in terms of confusion about what kind of forgiveness we're talking about here, because Jesus Might does be. tell his disciples to forgive one another. In fact, forgive 70 times seven, which is just this metaphor for not you have to forgive 490 times. It just means live in a perpetual state of forgiveness with one another. And so right. I think when we're talking about our horizontal relationships with one, an hour, uh, with one another, we do have the power to forgive one another. Sometimes I need the help of God to, to bring that forgiveness to bear in the midst of our relationship, right. but we can forgive one another. But when we're we're talking about the forgiveness of sort of the macro disposition of sins of, of of the of the rebellion of the world. That's not we're we're not dying on the cross. Jesus did a once for all kind of forgiveness for those who would say yes to that. I don't think John is referencing that. I think John is simply referencing the idea that hey, you perish if I did something wrong to you and you said Peter, I forgive you. That sin is forgiven. Yes. I mean, we're not talking about the macro state of the world here. We're talking about what is standing in the way of our relationship that is otherwise unresolved has a power at work between us to disfigure our relationship. But as soon as you interact with this redemptive resource called forgiveness, then that power is broken, and you and I can be restored over time in our trust and in our relationship. Don't we also stand—oh,
0: sorry, Tom.
1: I'm sorry. Well, no, go ahead, Bill.
0: Don't we also stand on uh, the—we always stand on the authority of God's Word. So if I'm leading someone to Christ, and I say, if you confess your sins to God, He is faithful and just to forgive you of your sins and cleanse you of all unrighteousness— And they genuinely repent of all sin and the person would look at you and say so are my sins really forgiven Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and i can Mm -hmm. say Mm -hmm. yes based on the authority of god's word your sins are in fact forgiven now have i forgiven them of their sins no Mm -hmm. i have stood on the authority of god's word Mm -hmm. see this is
2: where
1: i remember a professor saying that he had a woman in his congregation Uh, who just, she did something that she just, she, she, she was just telling the pastor a lot about how sinful she was. And, you know, I did this best. He said, finally, he got so tired of it. He said, I put my hand on her head and I said, woman, I declare to you the entire forgiveness of all your sins in the name of the father, son, and Holy spirit. And he said, it was like something broke and she got it. And, you know, there is a power that when we confess our sins to a a Christian brother or sister and then hear them tell us back that indeed God has forgiven that, that is just a freeing, wonderful thing. That's why James 5 says, confess your sins to one another, pray for one another that you may be healed. There's power in Mm -hmm. confessing our sins and receiving the absolution.
2: This is Mm -hmm. why I always caution people, when you look at a verse of Scripture like this in John 20... You've got the resources now with your computers and everything else. Go look at all the other verses on forgiveness or what Jesus says about forgiveness and put them together as a whole picture, not as just an isolated statement, because we can always misunderstand this. I know there was a, a group of Christians I read about them years ago, almost based on this passage that said they, since they had the authority to forgive sins, they could literally stand over the grave of Adolf Hitler and forgive him. And then he would go to eternity. Now, we don't believe that for a moment. The agency of him repenting and his relationship with the Lord, of course. But that's where the all of Scripture comes in. So make sure you do that and not base your whole idea on one passage.
3: Yeah, absolutely. And when Jesus comes in and says that now is the time of the Jubilee, the Jubilee was the was the celebration every fifty years among the people of Israel to forgive all of the debts that were owed one to another and every and the and the, the slate was wiped clean across the board. And so we are really talking about, I think, different layers of forgiveness sure. we're talking about the, the Jubilee forgiveness of the kingdom that has come because Jesus decided to walk that death out on the cross and then be raised in your life. That's the forgiveness we can proclaim that I think we're all saying today. We proclaim that to one another. We don't do that kind of forgiving. But I think in the midst of kingdom life, then, because the Spirit has acted in our life, we have the power to authentically forgive one another. I don't forgive the macro jubilee sort of sense, but I do say to you, Parish, or you say to me, I forgive you. And right. and something actually happens in the fabric of our relationship sure as a
0: result of it. Okay, we got... You know,
1: I think we... I'm sorry. Go ahead, Bill.
0: No, you got another thought, Tom, and then I've got one more quick well, question.
1: I'll,
0: well, you go ahead, Bill. Uh, one last question. Uh, there's still a bunch of questions, so I'm not getting to all of them, but it, your thoughts on celebrating Halloween as a Christian and what that communicates to non-believers?
2: nonbelievers. Hmm. Yeah. Yep. I mean, we can get carried <laughs> away with it one end or the other. I, I personally don't celebrate Halloween uh, at this point in my life, uh, although I still like the pumpkins and I like the gourds and the other stuff and all of that. But I think we have to understand it's got a mixed origin and a mixed uh theological concept tied to it. I would advise each person to really pray about it, look into it, and be careful about it.
1: And you know, I like I like using the devil's holidays for the gospel. So what I like to do is buy a bunch of <laughs> salvation Halloween tracks and when the kids come to the door you drop in the candy and a salvation Halloween tract on how to be saved from the devil. And
2: uh and, <laughs>
0: Works for me. <laughs> Again, a great strategy. <laughs> Tom, thank you for calling in all the way from Italy. What town are you in right now?
1: I'm in Vernazza.
0: Okay. Your Italian <laughs> you accent hiking? needs help. But anyway, <laughs> look forward to our next time together. Gentlemen, thank you so much for uh, being here Thanks, for yeah. Guide Talk. Although it's men talk as well. Yeah, <laughs> men, so you know. You lowered
3: the octave of your
0: voice yes, for men talk. Oh, yes, did, I did yes. lower the octave of <laughs> my voice. So much voice. better. <laughs> Thank you so much. We're going to take a little break when we come back. Hour two is just ahead, and Todd Mulliken is going to be joining me. I'm looking forward to our time together with him. If you've got questions about relationships, we're going to be talking about that in the next hour. You can always send them over, 877-933-2484. Again, we'll be right back with lots more. <clears throat>